You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and we're on your smart speaker. Coming up, Rishi Sunak manages to cling on through Christmas, but what New Year surprises does his party have in store for him? Peppa Pig outperforms Harry and Meghan on Netflix. Can it get any worse for them? And lawless Britain becomes even more lawless as shoplifting gangs are taking over our shops. Good evening, Britain, and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak might have escaped from the House of Commons last night, thinking that he'd got away with an attempt to strip him of his power and to remove all semblance of doubt about who was actually running the country. But as darkness fell tonight, it looks as though things have actually gone from bad to worse yet again in just 24 hours. Last night, he squeezed through a vote on the Rwanda migration deportation plan, narrowly winning it by persuading Tory MPs not to vote against it. But there is more trouble ahead. First up is Sunak's dreadful popularity rating. He's now been given his lowest ever net favourability score of minus 49. That's down 10% from last month. And he's now just as unpopular as Boris Johnson was when he resigned from number 10. To make matters worse, we've now got some actual deportation statistics and they do not make pleasant reading for the government or for the Home Office. You might remember a Home Affairs Select Committee meeting a couple of weeks back when Tory MP Lee Anderson tried but failed to get an answer from some Home Office officials on how many migrants have been deported to their home countries who were not actually from Albania. You might also remember that the hapless mandarins couldn't find any details. Instead, they promised to send them when they had them. Well, now they do, and here they are. Only 408 non-Albanian migrants who arrived by small boats since 2020 have been returned to their home countries. And that's just 0.4% of the nearly 110,000 who arrived since that date. Not exactly a triumph, is it? And if you add in the Albanian numbers, it doesn't get much better. In fact, it jumps the figure to just 1.06% of that same total. And so for Lee Anderson and the rest of us, it would seem that there was a reason the Home Office bigwig couldn't or wouldn't answer his questions. They knew the answers would be embarrassing and a complete exposure of just how useless they have been in the last four years. Tonight, we will look at all the options in front of the Prime Minister and the Tory party. Can they move back to the right and start trying to woo voters who are now threatening to go with reform? Or are they doomed to tear each other apart, leaving the door wide open for Sir Keir Starmer, the snake charmer, as I've started calling him? Also, we'll be looking at what went wrong for Welsh Minister, Welsh First Minister Mark Drakeford. He's now the final piece of the jigsaw, the third leader who locked everyone down so hard, now out of a job. 
We've got more tales away from Hollywood where the world's biggest losers, Harry and Meghan, are still licking their wounds. And we're investigating lawless Britain with the latest news that foreign gangs are now shipping in dozens of shoplifters in a bid to make millions before Christmas. Oh, and then there's COP28. Those eco-nutters have saved the world again. Is it going to work this time? This is the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Let's get it on. So um, I want to hear from you tonight as well because there's a lot of talk about Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage being tipped to run on a joint ticket. I'm not sure that that's what's going to happen, but could anything save the Tory party at this point? Call me on 0344 499 1000. Calls will cost the national rate. Uh, we'll also bring you more uh, on that Rwanda bill. Uh, we're going to talk an awful lot about what happens in the new year, uh, which way you're going to vote because we need to know precisely how much trouble Rishi Sunak is actually in. And how well uh, is Keir Starmer viewed? I don't think terribly well, certainly not by the people who watch this show. Joining me, though, to discuss the latest is our political correspondent, Alicia Fitzgerald. Uh, evening, Alicia. Thanks for joining me. Evening, Mike. So, I mean, it's a difficult question to answer because I don't think anyone really truly knows the answer. But, I mean, I suppose is the Tory party finished is, is part one. And the sort of secondary part is can anything save them? Well, I guess a good place to start with that are those recent YouGov poll statistics that you just mentioned. Rishi Sunak saw his lowest popularity rating since he began as prime minister with numbers hitting similar realms to when Boris Johnson actually left number 10 and when his rating started to really drop. He's not quite as low as Liz Truss in the in the polls um, just after her mini budget, though. So he's just about ex escaped that one. But even so, it's going to be a really big kick in the teeth. Uh, polls, obviously, they're not 100% accurate all the time. They don't like necessarily mean they reflect everyone's views, but they're a good bellwether, a good temperature test for how the public are feeling. The other thing, obviously, is this big Rwanda issue. Yes, he did escape last night. He got it through. He passed just about. But he's definitely not out of the woods by any means. It's just the beginning of what is set to be a really protracted affair. And lots of MPs are saying that if it doesn't pass, his leadership is really in jeopardy. Well, exactly. And I was listening to Jake Berry today. He was saying that there was an awful lot of political capital spent yesterday from the whip's office point of view, that loads of stuff that they had on people was kind of thrown to the, to the, wolf, to the wolves and forgotten about in order to persuade everybody not to vote against that bill. Well, exactly. And it's very telling, I think, when a prime minister has to spend his day meeting with his own MPs to convince them to vote in favour of a bill that allegedly they all should be agreeing on because they are all members of the same party. It's definitely not the best look for a prime minister to be doing. And it doesn't really send a signal that the prime minister is really sure and has a clear direction of the party. But even so, it's definitely not over. He's still pretty much in the same position he was in last night, just under a bit less time pressure. The bill is going to return to the House of Commons in January. And he still has the exact same problem. He's got those towards the right of the party saying that they want the bill to change, they want it to be tougher, they want they want it to just be a bit more hardline. And then those who are in the more centrist wing of the Conservative Party saying that they don't want it changed at all. So although no one voted against it, none of the Conservative Party voted against the bill last night, a lot of them abstained and those are going to be uh, the ones who he has to win over just as he did yesterday. I mean, it does have a whiff of Brexit about it, this. I know this has been said before, but there is that sort of, you know, undeniable stench that these people are never going to move from their positions and therefore you're never going to be able to get anything other than a stalemate. 
Well, exactly. And the trouble is, is Rishi Sunak has got to please two ends of a party that are totally polarised at the moment. We've got the One Nation Conservatives. Those are the ones with a more centrist approach to conservatism. They're about 100 MPs strong, so they're a pretty big faction within his party. And they all think that they're really worried about bypassing international law and our obligations there. And then those on the right have a complete different point of view about this. So getting that right in the middle, getting right is probably not the right word to use there, getting it correct and trying to, to please both ends of a party that are so divided is going to be a massive task for Rishi Sunak. And no one really knows exactly what he's going to do about it. No, absolutely. Alicia, thank you very much indeed. Alicia Fitzgerald there reporting in uh, from the developments tonight. Joining me in the studio tonight to discuss what's next for Rishi and the Conservatives after that win, they call it that, last night. Let's get it from Daily Express, Sam Lister. Sam, very good evening to you. Um, but let's also talk to Deputy Commander of Telegraph, Annabelle Denham. Good evening, Annabelle. Good evening, Mike. Good evening, um, Sam. Um, yeah, is it the case, do you think, that we are seeing the sort of ends of days of the Tory party in its current form? I mean, Danny Finkelstein wrote a piece in The Times today going on and on about how you might think that the answer is Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage, but it probably isn't. But it kind of led me to think that there's still an awful lot of people that can get this very wrong. A lot of political commentators who didn't see Brexit coming, who didn't see the rise of, uh, of UKIP at the time that Nigel Farage made, made it so popular... Um, and kind of didn't really see Boris Johnson and the referendum result going the, the way that it did either. No, that's right. Now, the old adage goes that a week is a long time in politics and yeah. you really don't know what's going to happen over the next 12 months. Certainly, it looks more likely, at least in my view, that there will be a general election this time next year, that the Conservatives will cling on to power for as long as they possibly can. Now, in terms of what will happen to the party after the next general election, if the polls are to be believed, and it's difficult now to think that Labour won't win, given they are 20 points ahead, and Rishi Sunak's personal approval rating has sunk so low, it's entirely possible that we're going to see a big split within the Tories, between those who are on the right of the party and those who are more centrist as was set out before, it will depend really on the nature of the losses that they face in 2024-25. Are they going to lose most of their red wool seats? Are they going to actually cling on to most of their blue wool seats? Will it be a mixture? And I think that will determine who wins the next Tory leadership contest and therefore which faction ultimately wins the heart and the soul of the Conservative Party. But there is a possibility, a remote possibility, that actually it's the Tories who become the populist party, that you don't have this splinter group of Richard Tyson, Nigel Farage and Liz Truss and Boris Johnson, because actually it's the Conservatives who pivot towards appealing to the kind of voters who would vote for that quad. I wonder if that's the case. Sam, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we, we are in a very difficult position uh, in terms of, of, of people who are Conservative voters who want a proper Conservative choice. Because the people I talk to in reform, and I'm sure you do as well, say, look, we don't want to merge with the Tory party, we want to destroy them. I mean, this is it. And, and actually, the Conservative MPs who are in the most at-risk seats, and yeah. let's, be, let's face it, that's quite a lot of them these yeah, days, yeah. Even, even if you've got a quite sizeable majority, right. you are at risk. In, certainly in the North and the Midlands, the party they are most worried about is reform, not mm. because reform will win their seat, but because it will take enough of their votes yes. to allow Labour to win it by default, right. as it were. 
and they know there is no deal to be done with reform. There is no um, stepping aside mm. to allow them to, to win the seats in the way that happened at the, at the last election yeah. under Boris Johnson because reform are intent on destroying the party. So yeah. this really is a big concern for them. It really is. I think the, the issue, though, about whether you tax the right, and a lot of the right say... People want a, uh, you know, a proper conservative government. They, they feel, I mean, Rishi Sunak was accused of being socialist yesterday mm. in one of the meetings he had with MPs. They want him to go further to the right to win people over. But when you look back at who has been successful, uh, David Cameron obviously won that surprise majority. Um, Boris Johnson, he won on the back of Brexit, but he was a very high spending mm big state conservative, really. Yeah. Um, he wasn't right-wing. Uh, many of them view him as a socialist in right. many ways. So actually, the, the most successful leaders they've had, uh, you know, have been of the centre. Yes, and that is generally the myth uh, abroad, isn't it? Or at least yeah. it was, whether yeah. that's the case. Annabel, uh, back to you, um, Annabel Denham. Is it the case, though, that many people are getting this wrong or will get it wrong? I mean, Danny Finkelstein's piece sort of intimated a bit, I thought, snobbishly, that basically people who might want to vote for reform are the people who would most likely benefit from a big state, who would most likely use uh, public services the, the most. And I'm not sure that's true. It's kind of looking down on people who uh, they term less well-educated, basically, um, who apparently need more from the, from the state. There's, I certainly have some sympathy with your points there. Uh, Mike, look, what we've seen over the last 10 or so years is a fundamental and drastic political realignment where voters are more united on cultural issues than they are on economic ones. Previously, you could assume that if somebody was reasonably socially conservative, that they would also be a free marketeer. But now, and this is particularly observable in the 2019 general election, you could be uh, anti culture wars, anti-woke, but actually also want the government to be quite interventionist in the economy. And this is the point that Daniel Finkelstein is underscoring, that if Liz Truss did join heads with Boris Johnson and Richard Tice and Nigel Farage, that there's a chance that they won't actually be attracting that many voters out there because the sorts of people who would be drawn to them for their position on issues like the trans wars uh, will not necessarily support Liz Truss's plans for deregulation and slashing taxes and massively rolling back uh, the state. And so you have to ask, you know, in modern day Britain, how many people would be would be supportive of that. And th this is not just a problem, of course, for the Conservative Party, which finds itself very split, but the Labour Party as well. What's very awkward for Keir Starmer at the moment is that while he's been able to sit back and watch the Conservatives tear themselves apart over what is ultimately a gimmick, Labour doesn't have an answer to stopping the boats either for all of its talk about uh, speeding up processing and having better cooperation with France. And while Labour, the party, might be united United in being reasonably relaxed about mass migration, its voters certainly are not. And this is soon, we expect, going to be Keir's headache. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Let's move on to those migration figures. Uh, thanks very much, Annabelle. Sam, let's remind ourselves of what happened a couple of weeks ago, it might have been longer, when Lee Anderson basically put to um, some Home <laughs> Office mandarins, top bigwigs at the Home Office, uh, who had come before a Home Affairs Select Committee. He was trying to get some numbers out of them, and I think all of us who saw that were absolutely staggered at what they didn't know. Have a look. Put foreign offenders aside and Albanians aside, just forget about those numbers, how many people travelling on small boats that's been refused asylum have been sent to a third country or back to their own country over the past three years? 
be on it. I don't think we have. I don't. I don't. I think we'll, we'll, we'll write to the committee with those numbers, Mr. Anderson. That's quite. That's staggering. That's actually. It's staggering. Just sort of so, so, okay, then let's do it for the last year. I, d I don't have a number for non-Albanian, non-FNOs. Perhaps they might be able to help you. Let's do oh. last week then. Do we have any figures about anything? Yes. In the last six months, just. How many in the last six months? As, as Simon said, there. I mean, there, there are there are uh, charter flights and, and other ways of doing returns the whole time, uh, constantly, and we can yeah, we can no, give you whatever whatever timeline return periods like. People who are coming here uh, who are being refused asylum, because I'm, I'm yes. sure there's a few. How yeah. many were sent back last month? Incoming. We'll, we'll, we'll write to you with those numbers. I mean, I still, I'm absolutely lost as to what he was looking for when he was <laughs> turning that empty page over into another empty page. But we've now got the answers because they've now actually written a letter to the Home Office, from the Home Office's Permanent Secretary to the Commons Home Affairs Committee. And the number is uh, 408 non-Albanian migrants who have arrived by small boats since 2020, which amounts to, as I said earlier, 0.4% of all of those who have come. So it's a complete nonsense, isn't it? It's yeah. just not working in any no. way, shape or form. No, it's not. And, and, you know, clearly it is embarrassing for the Home Office mm. and that's where we saw... That's why they didn't the, want the to give the number. ...the we, we did. Right. And there was another meeting of the Home Affairs Committee this afternoon where um, the, the MPs did give the, uh, the panel, which included the new, two new immigration ministers yeah. uh, and an official, a bit of a telling off about the lack of information that's yeah. forthcoming from their department. Um, I mean, I think... To be fair to the Prime Minister, he, he has made some progress on this issue in that he has managed to cut the number of boats crossing over by a third in the last year. Um, and that's something that, that they fail to be able to kind of promote that in, yeah. in many ways because there are so many other issues that are drowning out yes. the successes they're having. Yeah. Because he set himself such a tough target to, to, to stop the boats, not to reduce the numbers, but to, to stop the boats completely. Mm. It doesn't matter if you reduce it by a third, does it? No. It's not stopping the boats. So. Well, one, he's not stopping the boats. And two, the people who have already come are yeah, still here. are still here. And nobody's sending them anywhere because yeah. the Sun have followed this up, I think, in their paper tomorrow. Uh, they'll be saying that just 1% of small boat arrivals since 2020 have been sent back. And again, you know, we hear all the time from certain political pundits and from certain people on the left in particular, when they go, oh, yeah, but this is not a big issue. You know, it's only a big issue for some people. It's not really a big issue for everyone. Well, I'm sorry, I don't agree with that. I think it's a massive issue for the whole country, isn't it? It, 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 I think it very much depends on where you live because yeah. if you live in an area that's not really affected, if you live in one of the nice leafy areas in the home counties... There's not many areas that are it. not affected now. No. The, more, the more people that come, even those leafy areas yeah. are getting affected. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, it does affect the um, makeup of the town, the, the pressure on services, all that kind of stuff, which we know, well-rehearsed arguments. Um, but it, I mean, it is a real problem now because the, the Prime Minister now is so inextricably linked with this issue... Mm that he has to get those flights to Rwanda off the ground. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, he's, he's done at the election. Right. And I think that's a real problem for him. Um, everything now rests on those uh, flights. But he has linked his premiership so mm. inextricably with that policy. Yeah. And it's symbolic, isn't it? We know that that doesn't really touch the sides when it comes to, no. the, to the people well, who are already here. Because I'll come back to, to Annabelle down at the Telegraph. I mean, you, you'll be doing loads on this, I'm sure, tomorrow, Annabelle, in the paper. But, you know, if it was to be a success, it would only be another 1%, wouldn't it, going to Rwanda? 
it would be a tiny proportion of those who are crossing the channel in boats. And the government's argument, it's counter to that, would be, well, Rwanda is designed to be a deterrent if the smuggling gangs cannot guarantee to the people they are bringing across the channel that they will be granted asylum when they get here, then that will start to break their business model. But I think in order for that to be true, the numbers that would need to be sent to Rwanda would need to be beyond the hundreds. I imagine you would need 5,000, possibly 10,000 being sent to Rwanda each year in order for those illegal migrants who are considering coming over to Britain to think that perhaps the journey simply isn't worth it. In terms of this being an issue to voters, I don't think that that can actually be overstated. People are frankly appalled at the number of uh, migrants who are crossing the channel. They're appalled at the lawlessness of it, of the sense that these people, some of these people, the ones who are not genuine refugees are in some way cheating, they're leapfrogging those who are trying to come to the UK through legal means. And I think they're deeply unsettled by this sense that the government cannot not only tackle this, but also doesn't seem to have any grasp of what the issue is, of what has been done previously. And I think I'll just pick up on one thing that Sam said just there about the Home Office being embarrassed. I'm not sure that such a thing is even possible for a Home <laughs> Office in this country. I mean, it was back in 2006 that John Reed described the department as unfit and not fit for purpose. Yeah. In the last few months, Rishi has had to sack the Home Secretary. They've lost their immigration minister. It seems to have failed in every attempt to either process people more quickly or to house these people anywhere other than hotels uh, in, in getting the Rwanda plan off the ground. You know, it simply isn't working. And yet the government doesn't seem to have a solution. No, they absolutely don't seem to have a solution for anything. Annabelle Denham, thank you very much indeed. Sam Lister, I know you'll be coming back later on as part of the panel. We'll be looking into all uh, the papers and seeing what they're saying about all of this. Plus, of course, uh, a little appreciation, or perhaps not so much, uh, of Mark Drakeford, uh, who resigned today as First Minister of Wales. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Uh, Harry and Meghan's Netflix documentary ends up being the 211th most watched show Peppa Pig performed better. And Lawless Britain is back. Uh, more than 50 shoplifting gangs are emptying our shelves every single day. Don't miss that. Coming up next. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It just gets worse and worse for the Ginger Winger and Princess Pinocchio, doesn't it? Peppa Pig is officially more successful than Harry and Meghan on Netflix. The Duke and Duchess's flop was only the 211th most viewed programme behind Peppa Pig and Paw Patrol. To discuss this, I'm joined by host of the To Die For podcast, Kinsey Schofield, and the royal editor, Robert Jobson. Robert, very good to see you. Thanks very much indeed for coming in. Uh, Kinsey... Um, who would have thought that uh, now that not only has the Hollywood Reporter uh, sort of ton poured a ton of horrible stuff all over them uh, and called them the losers of the year, uh, even the Netflix success that we thought they had was kind of not really a success either. Correct. I think that this is um, really going to hit Harry and Meghan because Netflix has typically kept their numbers secret However, they did market this particular documentary as a success for, for the Netflix brand. Uh, and 
It created new opportunities elsewhere for Harry and Meghan. Just the the line that Netflix gave that this was the most successful docu series ever, very vague on their numbers, but to see that it ranked below 200 in in Netflix all around streaming numbers, um, you know, I think that it's going to hit Harry and Meghan pretty hard for future opportunities. Well, I think so. And Robert, we saw yesterday that the charity. Uh, Archiewell is pretty much uh, falling down around its knees as well. Um, they've lost something like nine million pounds in or nine million dollars in in donations. You know, the success story that they were sort of touting seems to be made of sand, isn't it? Or built on sand? Well, it's all done with mirrors. Yeah, it seems to me. I mean, the reality is the uh, the Netflix documentary did well in terms of the publicity it created, right? Because the media lapped it up. We all lapped it up. Yeah. we got loads of it. In terms of the numbers, then clearly didn't do that well. But uh, as for their, um, their their charity, I think that really they should sort of hang their heads in shame. Really, I mean the fact is a lot of money has been put into that charity, and um, we don't really know what they do. All we know yeah. is they collected awards, but what for? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm no particular axe to grind against them if they're doing great, good cause, sure, and great, giving money to people that need it. But it just doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to be that the charities. You know, hasn't really. It's not really fit for scrutiny. No, I mean it pays a lot of people quite a lot of money. About five people, obviously, earn in excess of six figures each. Nice. Um, uh, they they claim that uh, Kinsey. I'm going to put this one to you. They claim that they've helped out some Nigerian young women uh, with some with some issues around uh, menstruation. Um, it's all very small potatoes, considering the fact that somebody gave them about eleven million dollars. You know, what have they done with it all? Well, I think if we're going to talk about menstruation, that has to be Jobson's uh, question. If we're being honest, <laughs> I uh, can't go kidding. there. <laughs> Lindsay, you, you deal with that one. It's just, it's just not going to yeah, help me. No, um, well, I think that what we've noticed with Archwell is that they insert themselves in projects that are already going, already happening, um, and initiatives that are already in the pipeline. Archwell jumps in and says. Uh, hey, we're Harry and Meghan. We can increase the publicity for this initiative if you let us just tack on. What's surprising to me is uh, they did, you know, counteract this story. They wanted TMZ here in the states to say that this story was garbage, uh, and they said that they have big time cash stashed away at Archwell. That they're fine. That they're not a corporation, so this the story is irrelevant. Well, if you've got big time cash stashed right. away. I mean, what? Why are you hoarding money? Yeah, Your whole yeah. objective is to be contributing money to meaningful initiatives. What, what's the point of hoarding it? Yeah. Well, I didn't think charities could do that. Yeah, right. I, I thought apparently in America to, they can. Well, I don't think you should be hoarding money. I mean, right. money. You know, the bottom line is charities for charity. You're supposed to well, that money that's in their bank could be helping those. Uh, you know, women in Nigeria. Yeah, well, it could be, and that's the other thing is that I, when I was reading the story of the tax return yesterday, thought to myself, I wonder if some of these big donations that have been made into the charity have actually come from them. You know, because if you're running a charity and you haven't got many donations, you go, well, we got a few quid. Let's put a couple of million in. It'll look like somebody's put some money in. I'm not saying that that's what's happened, but it's not inconceivable that might have happened, is it? Maybe it's coming from his dad. Who knows? Yeah, well, who knows? A silent <laughs> partner. But I mean, that's the other thing. Um, we've also seen stories today, Robert, about Prince Harry when he was younger. When, which you'll 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 know from from old, as I'm you know, older, uh, as you're older. But I mean, you know, when you've been following Harry around for a long time, yeah. And this is even before the days of Vegas. Not following him around. Well, not following like, him around. Right. But, but writing about him, and you know, we were, well, we were all following him around. I mean, you know, he would go to nightclubs. Uh, people no, would know never, where he I've went. I've never been in a nightclub where he was. Okay. Well. 
He's been in a lot of nightclubs, and we've got people talking about him. Uh, Paddy McGuinness has been saying he was at a wild party with him. He's ripping off a poster off the wall saying he doesn't want to have uh, the Queen see what he's doing. The Duke of Beaufort, I think, he's written a book yeah. saying he literally has to stop him throwing young women into a pool. I'm not saying he shouldn't have been doing any of that stuff, but he's a very different character now, isn't he? Well, we don't really know. I mean, he was, it wasn't that long ago he was in LA, in Las Vegas, playing strip billiards. Yeah. But, I mean... All, all, all I would say in that respect is a lot of people do a lot of things when they're young and uh, you should forgive them a little bit, but when they start preaching when they're older yes. about what we should all behave like, uh, I think then people have got a right to say, well, why should we listen to you, yeah. mate? You were a bit of a, you know, a bit of a... Well, you were certainly a rebel, you were out mm. there, and, he's, and caused his... Um, I know for a fact, cause some of his bodyguards a bit of a headache. Yes, but of course now what he says is that, uh, you know, Megan has managed to teach him... Um, of course, that Kinsey, that, and that was all part of his, you know, unfortunate upbringing and his unfortunate mental health problems. He was lashing out and taking all sorts of substances and drinking too much because he was unhappy. Well, if you read Spare, it sounds like he's just transitioned from alcohol to the, you know, to smoke in a bowl. If we're being honest, whatever <laughs> mushrooms <therapy>. are available, <laughs> yeah, and and there in therapy, uh, kumbaya. But um, no, I I haven't seen Harry in the last few years. What I see is a very resentful, vengeful, unhappy individual that spends more time in court than he than he obviously spends working uh, for Archwell, which the the documents say he. Mm. Works uh, one day a week for our twelve. Right. Well, that maybe maybe one day too many. And how seriously is it going to affect them? This business with the Hollywood Reporter, because you know, you and I have spoken many times about the way they're perceived by the sort of glitterati in America, and it looks as though they're running out of road, doesn't it? These are two people that can't commit to the long game. We saw that when they both quit the royal family. We saw that with Spotify. There were several options Megan could have taken after they ended their relationship. She could have continued to podcast, but with subscriptions, she could have found sponsors and could continue to podcast. They, they, uh, they don't commit to the long game, and I think that anybody that looks to work with them in the future needs to be hesitant of that. And that looks like the way it is, Robert, doesn't I mean, it? I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think that actually some of the podcasts grew on me. Yeah. Of Megan's, particularly, I thought they were quite good in the end. Right. And uh, I don't know why she stopped. Are you I mean, sure that's not some kind of Stockholm syndrome you're suffering from? I had to listen to Because <laughs> I haven't listened Mike, to Mike, Mike, I had to listen to Yeah, I know you them, had but, to. You know. And actually, maybe may that. Yeah, maybe it could that. be. Because I, you know, I studiously... <laughs> well, they weren't bad at the end. I studiously did not listen to them. I, I listened to clips from them. Uh, we played them out on shows. Similarly, I didn't watch the Netflix documentary series. I couldn't bring myself... I had it. to, mate. I did watch the curtsying thing, though, which I've never really forgiven them for, because I thought that was <laughs> horrific. Um, no, that was appalling. It was just dreadful. Yeah. And this kind of smugness that they, they portray... That they, I think even Harry thought that was appalling. Yeah. Well, I mean, you look back on all sorts of things. I look back on the Oprah uh, interview and see Harry looking appalled when she brings yeah, up the racism thing. But why does he do thing. something about it? Because he's whipped, isn't he, for want of a better word? It's a dangerous hey? route to go down. Well, I think, but I think you might be right. Yeah. He is. I mean, I could say that to, to Kinsey. I mean, that's not an offensive thing to say. I mean, he's clearly, you know, in the grip uh, of his wife, isn't he? I do think that he is wholeheartedly in love and so lonely. He has no other options anymore. He's lost right. a significant amount of friends. He's lost his family. So he's got to you know, play his cards right. He doesn't want to make, his, make the wife mad. Right. 
And are we ever going to see the kids? I mean, it seems to me like we've never really seen <laughs> the kids at all. I, uh, I mean, I'm not saying if, he shouldn't if, protect no, them from but, you know, whatever. I suppose they should be protected to a degree because they will become... They will become the focus of attention later on in the teen years. There's no doubt about that. I, I don't know. I don't think it's anything to do with the kids. I feel sorry for the kids, actually, because they're being wrapped up in this whole thing. But I think the Harry and Meghan saga, is reached, it's, it, it, the wheels have come off. Yeah, they really have. And Obed Scobie's done them no favours, has he? I mean, Obed, Omid. So, Omid who? I mean, you know... He's yeah, done, no, he hasn't done anybody. He's he's done done, himself, he thought he'd done himself a lot of favours until he lied. Well, do you know what's funny? Yeah. As, as you were saying, he, he's now rewritten his book uh, from the one he wrote. The original book was rewritten from the one that you wrote, right? Or for, for various other people wrote. Look, I mean, it's very hard to write a book. I mean, it's hard to read a book yeah. sometimes, but especially when it's spare or whatever. But the, I think hard, writing a book's difficult, but I think in this particular juncture... I think that the book didn't do anybody any favours. I think it, it was the name was spiteful, Endgame, even though he tried to justify it. Um, it hasn't done that well. I don't think it will do that well. I think people, when you, when the lie came out about the, the, the so-called racist yes. two, and it emerged that he hadn't told the, the complete truth or whose truth or whatever, I think that then you lose a little bit of traction. Yeah. I think so. And Sophie Wessex was sort of dragged into it latterly towards the end as well. And Kinsey, I mean, I don't know how, uh, again, the American public is is reacting, but I was in uh, on the East Coast not very long ago and the people I spoke to there about the whole royal scenario were, were not... Were, we're talking as though Harry and Meghan are not really in the royal family anymore. They were talking about um, Kate, they were talking about William, they were talking about King Charles, the coronation, still talking about the Queen. They didn't really mention Harry and Meghan at all, the people I spoke to. Yeah, I, I think you're right. You know, in the States, Harry and Meghan are um, seen as dramatic, too much information, um, mm. a bit toxic and vindictive. And it's Harry that people are interested in, not Meghan. Mm. Me Meghan married the prince, you know. And I think that that's where they need to have some sort of reality check. People are interested in Harry. Uh, but when you, you talk about Omid and, and Sophie, I think that, A, Sophie did reach out, try to help she Meghan. Did. The Queen offered multiple people uh, to help Meghan navigate the world. I think Meghan was very resentful that she felt rejected by Catherine. She wanted Catherine's attention and Catherine's mentorship. And Catherine is literally a human jungle gym with babies crawling all over her constantly yeah. and just didn't have it in her to, to do that. Well, and, and but, I, you know, I, but why I should she? Yeah. Well, exactly <laughs> yeah. right. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing has been a, a complete disaster from minute one. And whoever said to uh, uh, to Harry at some point or other, are you sure about this? I mean, I know Sophie fairly yeah. well. And, yeah. and this business on, you know, that she didn't reach out, it's just not true. The mm. Queen asked her to. She was, uh, the late Queen asked her to. And she offered herself and she was there to do it. Maybe, you know, Megan didn't think she was up the hierarchy enough. I don't know. Obviously, that's the, kind of... The bottom line is Sophie would have been a perfect person to yeah. help her, guide her through, yeah. because she's a great girl. You know, she's, you know, she helped, you know, she's helped me with the, 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 the journalist charity London Press Ball. Yeah. She's always been out there to help people and she's a good person. Yeah. So why Megan rejected her? I've, I've no idea. I know, absolutely ridiculous. Anyway, thank you to both of you. Uh, Kinsey, I'm sure we'll see you again soon. Keep your eyes open for, you know, any sort of tap being sold at knockdown prices by Netflix or uh, or Spotify or anything like that. <laughs> uh, Robert Jobson, thank you very much indeed. Uh, we'll be back after this. You're watching the Independent Republic uh, of Mike Graham. Lawless Britain, uh, even more lawless. We've got shoplifting gangs raiding the shops. And don't turn out the lights yet because COP28 wants to move away from oil, gas and coal. They're maniacs, I tell you.
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. I regret to inform you that the shoplifting epidemic in this nation continues apace. And if that's not depressing enough, children and women are trafficked into Britain to steal to order for criminal gangs. They're draining billions from the economy uh, and damaging all sorts of places uh, of business into the bargain. I'm now joined by former police superintendent for the Metropolitan Police, Leroy Logan, and former yeah. Met DCI, uh, Mike Neville. Uh, very good evening to both of you guys. Uh, Leroy, let me start with you. Is this a new phenomenon that we're seeing here? We're seeing an awful lot of gangs. We had some video yesterday of a pickpocketing gang operating in, in Leicester Square, very brazenly, just straight out in the open. I know we've always had it, but but is it getting more organised and is it is it worrying for you, that this is happening uh, now on a kind of daily basis just before Christmas? Well, it is a worrying trend because if you look at it, how social media has broadened the scale of it, the coordination, and, and, and how it's uh, used to mobilise people on a large scale. Mm. And then obviously you tie that in with the trafficking piece and how vulnerable people are being exploited by um, traffickers, um, slavery type elements in the whole sort of matrix of the toolkit yeah. of getting people to do what they want. We, we, we have seen that um, people are getting more and more attracted to this form of crime. Um, I think in a lot of ways, because it doesn't reflect a strong penalty in the courts. And I, I, I remember one of the things that Suella Breverman um, spoke about was, you know, these crimes should be, um, a higher priority, and I actually agreed with her on yeah. that because you know that the, the, these sort of crimes uh, in the past are not given the importance that it should. So it has to be a higher priority because it's getting large-scale, organised, cross-border um, crime gangs who are taking advantage of a large group of people through social media. Yeah, I mean, that is the problem, Mike, isn't it? Because uh, what we're going to see, if this is something that people can know that they can get away with, they're just going to keep doing it because the, the shopkeepers are going to be the ones that suffer. I mean, never mind the money that's disappearing from the economy. I'm more concerned about the individual shop owners because we're going to end up um, like some places in parts of America where you're not allowed into the shop uh, until you've shown that you're not actually up to no good, you're only allowed in one at a time, or they've got some kind of a, you know, bars on the windows and you have to buy things through that. I mean, it's horrible. It is horrible, and there's several reasons for all this. You've firstly got the, the police recruiting the wrong people. Uh, they're not so, people who don't make arrests. So I found out that 80% of the Met hadn't arrested anybody in a year. Uh, even if the you know evidence is gathered, like CCTV, uh, I dealt with one police force, Bedfordshire. They're only identifying 7% of the people captured on CCTV. So it's almost like not getting worth getting in the first place. Right. Uh, and then, as Leroy has indicated, when they go to court, uh, they're getting very pathetic sentences. Uh, and you've also got a Conservative, unbelievably, uh, minister, Alex Chalk, uh, saying that we shouldn't be putting people in prison for what he terms sort of minor crimes. So uh, this means this sort of shoplifting. And there's also, um, whereas, um, you know, if you leave your fingerprints or DNA anywhere in the country, there's a sort of national database to be checked upon. Yeah. There is no national database of images. So if you go around stealing in different places, even if you steal in the same place or different shops, uh, those images are never linked. So whereas a burglar can be linked by several fingerprint marks or DNA samples, these people who are captured on camera hundreds of times doing thefts simply aren't uh, matched together. So even if they do get caught, they're only being done for one crime. So it's a whole series of things which... 
in the end, it makes it uh, feel unsafe to go out to the shops and it shouldn't be like that. And, of course, we all suffer because the, the prices go up because mm. people are just brazenly stealing hundreds and thousands of pounds worth of goods. Uh, and what kind of society is it is where people are decent and hard work and see others just taking mm. things and walking out of shops, it just becomes anarchy in the end, doesn't it? Yeah. It's really bad. Well, it really does. I mean, and Leroy, I mean, where does all this stuff end up? Because, I mean, I assume it must not leave the country. I don't know whether they're, they're that organised and they're putting it, you know, into, into sort of trailers and driving it back across to Europe or something. But where does this stuff all end up and how do they make money selling it? Well, you know, unfortunately, there is an underground market. You know, you've got a black market, people who will buy things, you know, the old back of the lorry type yeah, yeah. Uh, scenario, even through social media. I think social media cannot be underestimated in its uh, way in which it coordinates crime on a, a massive scale. And um, I, I think it's been picked up by the retailers against crime. They're realising um, how social media is working on this and they're trying to raise their game because I think retailers really need to understand that um, police are not going to be uh, reacting as they should. Maybe in the future they will be, but they have to bring in their own assets to, one, security, yeah. beef up their security, two, uh, ensure that they've got um, those CCTV, um, facial recognition, all of these things to help to get a case and, and to pass it on to the police so that they can lead to convictions. And as we've already said, the courts need to reflect penalties that deter these people from this type uh, of activity. And, and if we've got people um, who are um, applying to be asylum seekers or whatever, and they're involved in crime, they've got to be sent back ASAP, because that's, that's one of the issues why we've got a lot of people um, milling around, don't, can't work, they're in this limbo situation in a hotel or on BB or whatever it may be, and they're being picked off by these organised gangsters. So th these are the sort of things we've got to speed up the process. So, you know, if the application's uh, accepted, fine. If not, go back. And especially if you're committing crimes and you're in that um, transition phase, you've got to go back. Yeah, I think that's got to be a no-brainer. Right, I mean, um, James Cleverly says he's going to crack down on these gangs, but, I mean, if they crack down on the gangs the same way they crack down uh, on the uh, illegal migrants, uh, we're going to not have uh, anybody stopping stealing anytime soon, are we? No, it's, it's, it's out of control. Uh, and what's, uh, uh, as Leroy has said, though, the, the private sector really taking the, their own, this into their own hands. There's good schemes like Face Watch, where you've got people being spotted on facial recognition when they come into the shops. A guy called Dave McKelvey runs a, a good scheme, My Local Bobby, where they have the local police officers. Uh, and I mean, even with him, he quoted a case where, you know, they actually found a shoplifter who was wanted on warrant for the court, they took them into Croydon Police Station and said that this person is actually not only guilty of shoplifting, but the court has issued a warrant, and no one would arrest them from yes. the uh, the police station. It's absolutely out of control. Mm. And uh, another example I could give that uh, a, a former PC from Avon and Somerset Police in Bristol, his caravan was stolen. It's not shoplifting; his caravan was stolen. It was on a tracker. He traced it to a traveller site. No one would go and get it. He, he saw it moving all the way up the motorway. And in the end, it was recovered and no one was arrested. But it's just 
I think people just feel that the police are not interested in catching criminals at the moment. Right. And it's it's really bad. And it makes people, as I keep saying, unsafe. And that's not good for our communities. No, absolutely not. Uh, Leroy, Logan, Mike Neville, thank you very much indeed. Uh, that is uh, the latest update uh, of what we're calling, um, you know, lawless Britain. Because it really does seem as though in certain parts of the country, and in most parts of the country, really, uh, that there is no... Uh, response from the law enforcement uh, officials that are supposed to be helping you out. There are people stealing cars, there are people stealing motorbikes, stealing bikes, stealing anything that they can get their hands on. Uh, I saw some video this week of a man trying to stop somebody stealing his own car. The guy just drove out of the, of the guy's driveway, knocking the door off and injuring him in the process. Just horrendous. Now you're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up, don't turn out the lights. The COP28 summit wants to move away from oil, gas and coal. Well, what are we going to live on, for heaven's sake? Plus, I want to hear from you as well. 0344 499 1000. This is Talk TV. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for Taking the Mic. How do you trick thousands of people into spending billions of pounds on something you can't prove to them is actually true? Simple. Organise a climate summit. We finally reached the end of COP28, thank God. And as usual, it has spawned only one thing for certain, and that is COP29, already scheduled to take place next year in Brazil. This year, it got off to a shaky start in Dubai when the COP28 president, Sultan Ahmed Al-Jabir, declared there was no science behind calls for an end to fossil fuels. Al Jabir, who also happens to be the head of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, sent all kinds of hairs running with the delegations that had turned up from 197 countries around the world. That was a couple of weeks ago, and since then, things have calmed down a little. They stayed up all night on Tuesday to produce a plan for the future, controlling of all our emissions. And guess what? They've decided we should all end our reliance on fossil fuels. The irony of where they were when they made this historic declaration seems to have been lost on them. Because let's face it, if they're all standing on one of the world's biggest oil fields, which no one in the Middle East is giving up on any time soon, they might have thought twice. But as if to confuse matters even further, is former Environment Secretary George Eustace telling Times Radio that people get a bit obsessed about the precise wording on fossil fuels? I think this is, you know, an important step forward. I think people probably got a bit too obsessed about the precise wording on fossil fuels. You know, the truth is that, you know, ever since we embarked on the COP process, it's all been about trying to decarbonise our energy. And there's been big strides made, particularly here in the UK and, and elsewhere. Sorry. Uh, what was that? I mean, what's he talking about? Meanwhile, back in the land of the multinational energy companies, it would appear that they haven't really been keeping their eye on the ball, so to speak. Today we learned that BP's former boss, Bernard Looney, who resigned in September because of a string of affairs he'd had at work, is going to be dismissed without notice and he'll receive no further salary or benefits. All in all, Mr Looney is going to miss out on, wait for it, £32.4 million because he misled his bosses and wasn't transparent enough about some of his past personal relationships. What on earth was he doing? And could this be the most expensive shag in the history of the world?
Lots of you have been getting in touch, and we're going to go to the phones very shortly, but I've got an awful lot of messages here as well. And on the subject of whether Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage can run on a joint ticket and actually save the Tory party, Martin says this, I will not give my vote to any mainstream party ever again under any circumstances whatsoever. Uh, Sal says, this plan makes Baldrick look like a certified genius. And Graham says, the only possible answer is no. Boris started OK as Prime Minister, but quickly blew it. He seemed greatly distracted by those close to him who had alternative agendas. And Canny says, if Nigel has any sense, he'll have no part of Boris and his buffoonery. This current batch of Tories needs wiping out. This alliance would not get my vote. And Phil says, how about Nigel and Sue Ella? Well, let's hear from uh, Roger in Hounslow. Hello, Roger. Evening, Mike. Evening, sir. What can I do for you? Well, on uh, the Boris subject there, I yeah. thought um, he did start off very well back in uh, 2019. He but did? He got sidetracked by so many things. Yeah. I mean, a new wife, two new kids, um, all sorts of things going on in his private exactly. life. Exactly, exactly. And then COVID, which didn't help. COVID, Partygate, and so yeah. on. Right. Now, um, actually, just before I go on, yeah, you mentioned just something about 28 cop. Yeah. Yeah, well, I sold a number plate last year, and it was 28 cop. Oh, really? I wonder if it was bought yeah. by somebody in the Middle East. Listen, I've come to you so late, I haven't got time to talk to you. I'm sorry. Um, that's my fault. We'll get back to you and we'll figure that out and we'll get you on to talk about what it was you wanted to talk about. But you're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Britain, do not go anywhere because the English Riviera has fallen victim to a chainsaw massacre. It's seen Torquay's palm trees cut down. Plus, we're going to show you an OAP who used his mobility scooter as a battering ram over a row about, you know what, a pasty. you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm volure xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365 day returns. Good evening. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online, and we're on your smart speaker. Tonight, child killer John Venables remains behind bars after he loses his parole bid. Devastation on the English Riviera after a chainsaw massacre that's seen Torquay's palm trees cut down. And baking bad. Get it? An OAP loses his temper over a steak bake and goes on a rampage using his mobility scooter. You definitely don't want to miss that one. Now, we're talking tonight as well about Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage, both tipped to run on a joint ticket, possibly to save the Tory party. It might not be them, but can anybody save the Tory party? You can have your say on 0344 499 1000. Uh, calls will cost you the national rate. Uh, you can get in touch with us on all the socials, of course, uh, as well. Now, let's talk about what's going on in this country, though, because it is the idyllic, sunshine-kissed corner of England that for decades has been the destination for many. A staycation, a dirty weekend, or just a trip to the seaside. Torquay is not just the centrepiece of the English Riviera. It was confirmed as such during the halcyon days of Faulty Towers. There were many jokes about Torquay being Britain's favourite retirement home and the last place you'd go to find anything trendy. That was its strength. But it had one thing going for it. Thanks to the balmy climate, it was home to dozens of palm trees, giving the town a distinctly tropical feel. The Italian gardens gave the town uh, a certain Mediterranean vibe, and when you spotted the trees, you knew exactly where you were. Well, tragically, not anymore, because some jobsworth in the council has decided to cut them all down. That's right, all 40 of them. Torbay Council claims that the cabbage trees, more officially known as Cordyline Australis, had to go because they were suffering from what they call significant degradation over the last few years, and they need replacing. And they say they're going to replace them and plant a further 60 trees over the winter and the spring. But I smell a rat. This is being called the Torquay Chainsaw Massacre by local people who are absolutely appalled. And this isn't the first time a council has lashed out with the saws. It happened in Plymouth back in March. The citizens were so outraged by what happened there that the head of the council had to resign. So if you're sitting pretty down there in Devon thinking you've got a great job and it's going to be a job for life, you better look out because the people are revolting. Now, coming up later on in the show, we'll bring you a first look at tomorrow's front pages. But before anyone else, we've got an exclusive look at the Sun newspaper. And the page one headline says, Leo in secret date with Lottie Moss. And that's, of course, Leonardo DiCaprio uh, and Kate Moss's daughter. Uh, we'll be bringing you more on that. And, of course, all of the other front pages with the panel uh, as they come back in a little bit later on. A couple more of you have been in touch as well um, about Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage. This one from MH. If true, this is insane. Boris had his chance and blew it. I like Boris and voted for him in 2019, but he made too many mistakes around COVID and fumbled Brexit. Farage needs to stand alone. Well, we'll see what comes out of that particular wash. But moving on now, child killer John Venables has today had his bid for freedom rejected by a parole board, providing huge relief for his victim's family. Venables was just 10 when he brutally tortured and killed two-year-old James Bulger in 1993. And he'll now spend at least another two years in prison after parole chiefs deemed he is still 
a danger to society. Joining me now to discuss this is former Met Police Detective Chief Inspector Mike Neville and Head of Abuse Law at Slater and Gordon, who represents one of Gary Glitter's victims, Richard Scorer. Um, thanks both for, uh, for joining us. Richard, let me start with you. I mean, I think I share the view of an awful lot of people in this country that they can't quite get their heads around why somebody like John Venables gets so many opportunities for parole, for a parole hearing, particularly not given just the heinous crime that he committed when he was a kid, but the fact that he's been recalled twice already. I mean, it seems mad to even consider it, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a perfectly um, fair point. And, and as you say, he's been recalled um, from pri to prison twice before after release because of reoffending. And uh, you'd have to be extraordinarily naive uh, to think that he wouldn't reoffend again. And not even not even the parole board would be that naive. But they have, of course, made uh, serious errors in other cases. I was involved in in the John Warboys case a few years ago, yes. the London taxicab rapist, who they wanted to release. Ultimately, that was. Uh, that 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 decision was overturned after the intervention of a court when victims uh, went to, to court to get it um, overturned. So, you know, the, the, the record actually of the parole board in this area um, has often not been particularly good, unfortunately. No, I remember that case very well. I remember <coughs> there was a judicial review asked for as well, uh, wasn't there, um, uh, by Mr Gork, who I think was the Attorney General at the time, and he turned it down and he wouldn't do it. And it was only, as you say, for the people who, uh, a couple of high-profile people as well, uh, who actually pushed that case through, uh, that he was um, not allowed out. Because he even revealed that he had still got the names and addresses of some of his victims. That's right. And, I mean, one of the problems with the parole board, and I think this is a really important point, is we don't actually know very much about how they make the decisions that they do make. I mean, I can tell you in theory about how the parole board work and the sort of evidence that they hear, but the reality is that we don't actually know about very much about how that works in practice because the vast majority of parole board hearings are conducted in private. And, you know, even when victims like my client, who's a, who's a victim of Gary Glitter, want there to be a public hearing, that, that, that is um, usually turned down. I think there have only been three public uh, parole board hearings so far. So we don't actually know very much about the decision-making process, despite, you know, the, the, the theory in this country is we have open justice. We don't actually get that with the parole board. No, we absolutely don't. Mike, let me come to you, because <laughs> as a police officer, you must be very frustrated about the way that these criminals are treated, because I think um, you're absolutely right to say it, uh, Kim, uh, that basically, um, at the end of the day, there was supposed to be uh, an open parole hearing for this guy. Um, it didn't happen, uh, because lawyers on his behalf pushed for his privacy to be protected, and they wouldn't even let a newspaper come in, never mind members of, uh, of the victim's family. That's right. And I mean, I'm pleased that uh, I sent a message by Denise Bulger just to say that uh, the months to say thank you for speaking out on television and say that this man should never be released. And of course, Venable should not be released because when we release people like who are burglars or robbers or whatever else, we're taking a chance that they won't do that again. But we shouldn't be taking any chances with, with people who, who commit crimes against children who are paedophiles. And Venables is uh, killed and abused one child, and then he's been sent back to prison twice for being in possession of obscene and, and vile child pornography. Uh, so he should be kept uh, away from the public. Mm. And, and why there should be any hearing in, in two years is beyond me, because it's just a waste of public money. This, this man should never be released because he's an absolute danger. He must know in himself 
that there is a danger that he cannot control and he will he will offend against children in some way the moment he is released. The moment he's released, he can have access to the internet no matter how much they try to stop him. Uh, I mean, I ran a, a sex offender unit in Lambeth. Mm. There were hundreds of people and five police officers. The idea that you could regularly check on them, it, it's just not happening. So the public would be let down there. He must remain in prison for the rest of his life, yeah. in my view. And, I mean, to come back to you, Richard, is there any kind of precedent or could there be some kind of law change made which would, in my view, help, I think, which would say that if you were released on parole um, and you offended and you were taken back into uh, custody, could you not have to have reset your whole parole situation, i.e. go back to the beginning of your sentence, if you like, so you don't get another opportunity for quite a long time? I, th I think there's a very strong argument for that. I mean... Uh, you know, my client, who as I said before is a victim of Gary Glitter, has to deal with the situation where obviously he was released uh, on licence not very long ago. Um, it was then discovered that he was he was trying to access the, the dark web. Incidentally, just to, to make the point, uh, and this goes to what what Mike was saying, uh, you know, that the fact that he was trying to do that was uncovered by the Sun newspaper. It wasn't yeah. uncovered by the probation service, who, right. were, who were charged with protecting the public from him. Um, you know, so there's an issue there. But then, he, you know, he's come back into prison and then the next parole hearing for him will be at the end of January. So it's a very, within a very short space of time, he is then um, able to, uh, you know, to reapply to be, be released. It's an unacceptable uh, situation and I, I absolutely agree that it needs to change. Yeah, absolutely right. And Mike, when you see um, these kind of um, campaigns by families who want to see uh, the, the victim, and uh, sorry, not the victim, but the, the, the victim's assailant, to look them in the eye, to go to these hearings. You know, on what grounds could those uh, lawyers actually say, no, you can't do that because it might be upsetting um, to the... Um, to the convict, effectively. Well, what you have here, of course, is quite a, a special case that uh, both, uh, the, both the murderers of Jamie Bulger were granted an anonymity for yeah. life. Mm. Uh, and so that's the, the, the strongest argument that they will uh, offer on this case. Uh, and I'm sure, but there's a thousand ways they could have done this with screens, yeah. um, with having a separate room, whatever else. But the families, in my view, they must be given a chance to speak out to explain the awfulness of the situation. No mother or father should lose a child, never mind lose a, a child in the circumstances that the Bulger family did. And they must be given the opportunity to speak out and state their risks as well. But they, that was denied them. And so what people see all the time is that the uh, too, many, uh, too many lawyers, and forgive me, uh, our guests, uh, too many lawyers, too many judges, they seem to take the side of the villain mm. and not the victim, and that is a bad thing. Yeah, and from what I'm understanding, I don't know if you can confirm this, Richard, that he didn't actually appear at his own parole board hearing in the end anyway, despite the fact that they've made it all very possible for him to be uh, uh, to be there and not be identified. Um, but he, have, having told them that he was completely rehabilitated and was no longer a danger to the public, um, he basically didn't want to suffer any disproportionate stress. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean that, that's my understanding, and and obviously, you know, I, I, I've read that um, as you have, and and I, I think that there needs to be a lot more transparency about the way the parole board operates. Mm. We do need to have open justice. We do need to have uh, public hearings so that people can see how the process is actually um, conducted. There's a there's a real need um, for that change, and I and I think it has to happen sooner rather than later. And what do you think, long-term, though, we can do with people like Venables? Because, as you say, I don't think anybody in their right mind, apart from people on the parole board, even would consider letting him out. 
I always say to people who say, well, it would be very difficult, we would have to spend an awful lot of money, we'd have to give him a new identity, we'd have to move him some, uh, somewhere in the world where he couldn't be recognised and all of those things. Uh, to which I always say, well, just don't let him out then. But then it costs us an awful lot of money to keep him in as well. It, it costs it us a cost lot of money, but I think... Sorry. Sorry, Mike, <laughs> um, go ahead. I think public, public protection demands that serious sex offenders, and I believe that, that Venables is one of those, actually... Uh, public protection demands that serious sex offenders are kept in jail for as long as possible because the reality is that there is overwhelmingly likely that they will reoffend, and we've seen that in case after case. And um, so, you know, public protection has to come first, the protection of children has to come first, and these people have to be kept in jail for as long as possible, is my view. Yeah. Mike, I'm, I'm sure you share that view. I mean, I interviewed... I absolutely, absolutely share that. He is evil personified. You know, yeah. you talk about nature versus nurture. This is a case of... Uh, Nature, in my view, uh, Venables is evil. He has evil blood within him. It'll, they'll never stop him. Whatever programmes he goes on, whatever he does, whenever he's released, he will find a way to abuse children. And mm. so that mu he must never be released, in my view. Yes. I mean, I once interviewed a paedophile who told me, and he wanted to be interviewed, he said, look, I will never stop wanting to do what I want to do. Um, I will never be able to stop. There's, no there's nothing uh, that's good about what my desires are for children and I can never be persuaded not to have them. And I think the sooner that the, the justice system recognises that, I mean, you don't become a paedophile and then just give up, do you? Absolutely. And, and this is what I'm saying about evil being in their veins. They just can't help themselves. Uh, we could do all sorts of chemical castration, whatever else. Maybe that could uh, play a part. But these wicked desires will always be there, and there simply isn't enough probation officers and police officers to monitor them all the time. You know, we see criminals taking tags off. There's all this talk of using electronic devices. The best way to stop people like Venables, and uh, and him in particular, committing offences against children, is to lock him up and throw away the key. It's, mm. it's that simple. It costs money, but how much value do we put on the innocence of children's lives? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And the story's in the sun uh, in tomorrow's paper. We're going to be seeing that a little bit later on uh, in the show. Uh, there's no way out for Bulger Killer um, is the headline, and Denise Fergus talking about it um, as well, because fortunately, um, Denise Fergus says the decision uh, is the best thing that has happened to her for 30 years. And she said, I hope Venables now gets to feel a bit of the anguish that I have felt. And that's the Daily Mirror's version, Justice for My James. Um, I mean, Denise Fergus has had a terrible time of it, um, all told, hasn't she? Because, I mean, I was around when the original report came out and some of the things that happened that we haven't really, haven't really been made public about James Bolger's death. Just awful. Uh, yeah, if you want my answer, yes, and and, and all credit to her, all, all credit to Denise for her strength mm -hmm. and the father as well, Ralph, for for, for pushing all the time, not letting it go. Mm. Uh, their strength is is uh, wonderful, and it keeps uh, their little boy's uh, name in our for, in our minds, so we know that we should be dealing with the Venables in the way that we are dealing with him. He is, he hasn't got parole, and that's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, Richard, do you think that there would ever be a conversation that could be had around the death penalty for these kinds of crimes? Because, obviously, whenever you do these kind of conversations on, uh, on radio, on TV uh, or in newspaper columns and things, you know, there's always quite, quite a lot of support um, for the possibility that the death penalty could be introduced. Would, would, you, would you ever see a time when that could be done? 
I, I don't think that's um, likely in this country, uh, to be honest. Obviously, the, the death penalty was abolished, you know, decades ago, and I don't think it's likely that that would come back. But I do think we need to have a proper conversation, as Mike has said, about, um, about how we deal with serious sex offenders. And it's completely wrong that uh, victims, and whether you're talking about Denise Bolger or, or, you know, my client, who's a victim of Gary Glitter, have to live with this constant merry-go-round of, of, you know, will, will they be released? Won't they be released? When's the next hearing coming up to, you know, to decide whether they can be, be released back into um, the community again? It, it's a completely wrong and unacceptable. And the stress it places on victims is, is, is really appalling. And I think, you know, for their sake, we need um, some proper sort of settled, um, you know, um, certainty over the way that serious sex offenders are dealt with. And that, that I think, has to happen. Yeah, I don't see it happening anytime soon either. But Richard, thank you very much indeed. Mike Neville as well. Uh, appreciate your time. Lots of you have been getting in touch uh, on the subject of Boris Johnson's return and on migration as well. The phone number is 0344 499 1000. Let me just tell you what some of you have been saying about John Venables as well. Uh, we asked whether um, he should be uh, able to be freed from jail at any point. Parker says, absolute madness that there was ever even a question of possible parole for this monster. Daryl says, bloody Nora, they have actually kept a monster behind bars for once. They've actually got it right. And Andrew says, the fact that he's even considered for parole is an absolute joke to that little boy's family. Keep him there, let him rot in hell. Well, I think that's right. I don't think there's many people, particularly parents, who could possibly countenance the idea that somebody who had murdered a child in the way that John Venables did should ever even be considered for parole. It's absolutely and utterly insane. Let's hear now, though, from John, uh, who's in West Lothian. I think he wants to talk about the migrant problem. John, a very good evening to you. Good evening, mate. Yeah, what do you want to tell me? Yeah, well, I watched uh, your uh, stint on the uh, senior uh, civil servants who appeared before the yes. committee. A, they seemed totally unprepared and they were almost treating the committee with contempt, in my mm. opinion. Um, the, it's almost as though the civil servants are now running the government yeah. uh, and that they've gone so woke. And I don't think anybody will change them at the moment because, you know, all the opinion polls say Labour are going to get in and that, yeah. that, that's the way they're going to go. They're not going to support. And, if, if, and they're all working from home. They don't want to go back into the office. And all these, the build-up of all these claims that are not being processed, why? And, and it, looking at those two that appeared before the committee today, there's no way are they in charge. No way are they going to make these people, you know, raise their game and deal with the claims. No. Well, I mean, these people going to a Home Affairs Select Committee should have had those numbers in their head. I mean, it was very clear when Lee Anderson was asking him the question that he knew um, that whatever the number was, it wasn't a very big number. And as right enough, we found out, it was 0.4% without including Albania. And it was 1.6%, I think, or 1.4% once you brought the Albanian numbers in. But it's woefully small. And the fact that they didn't know that it was woefully small and they couldn't say would suggest that they were trying to hide it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And clearly there's nobody in charge of them. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. Incredible that that could be the, the sort of one of the biggest offices of state in this country. John, thanks very much indeed. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Do not move a muscle, though, because coming up, we're going to talk about the OAP who used his mobility scooter as a battering ram over a row about a pasty. And by the way, we'll take more of your calls as well. 0344 499 1000. This is Talk TV.
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, we're still taking your calls. We've got lots to do. Uh, the panel are going to be back in a moment, but I've got something to show you. And you know how what we like to do here uh, at the Independent Republic is to sort of uh, bring out some of the more eccentric things that happen around the country. Um, here's one I don't think you'll quite believe. And if you enjoyed Breaking Bad, check this out. We're calling it Baking Bad, right? This is um, some people in a part of the country where clearly... Steak bakes are very much uh, a thing that are in great demand, right? You can see a bit of a dispute going on. It looks as though what happened was that a guy turned up in his mobility scooter to get a steak bake in a shop, uh, was distressed to discover that the last steak bake had in fact been sold uh, to the guy that he's just run over. Uh, he went for him. He just decided that he'd had, had enough. So uh, let's have a look at it with the sound up and you might get a better flavour of it. I did not. I said, do you want help? What you dare? You just knocked him over. I mean, I'm sorry. You probably shouldn't laugh at that, but I mean, it really is quite amusing, isn't it? Um, got Dave Chawner with me, uh, comedian, for the first time on the panel. Welcome. Uh, Sam Lister as well. Uh, and Mr Glendening from uh, the IEA. Very nice to see you. Nice to see you. Um, I mean, that's a weird thing, isn't it? I mean, when you start to get that carried away, it's one of the signs of the collapse of society. I mean, when people start <laughs> fighting over Cornish pasties and steak bakes. I think, I think it's a travesty. It hasn't happened more, to be honest. Well, it may be happening a lot. It's just yeah. so happens that things are now being captured on, uh, on TV. But, you know, there is, there's definitely a growing number of these mobility scooters out there. I see them in all kinds of different scenarios now. You see them going down roads. Right. You see them on pavements. You see them, you know, in shopping centres. They're a bit of a menace, it seems to me. Or a good battering ram. Uh, or a good battering I've never seen anyone run, use one I, to run somebody over. That's changed how I feel about it. Is there any food that you would run someone over for? It depends how hungry I am, I think, would be the answer to that. You know, but mean, a roast dinner, like a good roast, would you... I don't think I'd really run people over for food, but people do get... I mean, Christmas shopping is... is I don't know if, yeah. you, if you've all been doing that. Christmas shopping can get a little bit out of hand, yeah, yeah. can't it? I, I've got to admit. I think also not only mobility scooters, but people use prams. I don't know if you've... Yes. Like, I, I swear they don't have kids. They're just filled with Prams on public just... transport. I mean, I've yeah, seen people yeah. getting on the tube with a double-sided pram, mm. but carrying the children... And yeah. so the pram is like in the way so nobody can get around them and they're just holding the kids and aim for your shins as well yeah that really annoys me yeah you should have to have a license there's a lot to unpack here clearly <laughs> you can't um, imagine anybody getting into a fight over a vegan pasty could you outside of <laughs> I don't think they've got the energy I mean I can understand the word steak that I think yes. brings out the primal yeah, yeah. I'm really sorry about do you think yeah. there's any steak in a steak bake do you really <laughs> Um, well, are you suggesting that it might be mechanically recovered meat? I'm, I'm not meat. saying yeah. anything. I think it depends where you get them from. Right. I'm okay. not quite sure what sort of shop this was, but I, I just like baking bad. I just quite like that. I think that's, that's a very quite good point. Um, now, uh, before we go back with some of the other stories in the papers, we're going to move on because BBC chairman Samir Shah spoke to MPs today and confirmed that Gary Lineker's tweet about Defence Secretary Grant Shapps did indeed breach the channel's impartiality guidelines. Uh, it said... Um, it was a tad rich coming from someone who can't even stick to one name, four chaps, chaps. <laughs> he was kicking up a fuss because chaps questioned whether he should be allowed to express political views. And here's what Samir Shah had to say. As far as I'm aware, the, uh, 
the signing of the letter did not breach those guidelines. I do think, however, the more recent uh, tweet that uh, Mr. Lineker, uh, in which he identified some two politicians, does on the face of it seem to breach those particular guidelines of public. I, I'm not sure how egregious it is, but it does. And I would imagine that the BBC is now looking into that and um, considering its response. That's a very BBC sort of statement, that, isn't it? The BBC is looking into it and is considering its response. Well, either it's against the guidelines or it's not. Um, just for introducing the panel, Mark Glendane, uh, Sam Lister, uh, Dave Chawner. Um, Mark, let me come to you. I mean, the BBC's got themselves into a hell of a mess over this, haven't they? Well, yes, absolutely. And, of course, they apply asymmetrical standards. So they banned their Jewish employees right. from going on the march yeah. against Yeah, because that would, be, that would be hate speech, obviously. Yeah. But then Gary yeah. Lineker retweets um, uh, material, um, you know, that Owen Jones has come yes. out with. Yeah, well, that was uh, the stuff about that Israel. Israel is engaging in yes. genocide. Right. Whatever you think about right. that particular situation, it's clearly not genocide. Right. Um, you know, so Gary Lineker then uh, also calls the, guy the government who... Nazi. Yet yeah. He supports um, us being subjected to an unelected European yeah. commission that can impose laws upon us. So he can do all this. Yeah. Um, which, if he were a com if he wasn't working for the BBC, would be fine. He can do what he yeah, likes. Right. But he's working for an institution that we have to pay for. Yes. So it's quite different from you saying whatever it is right. you want to say. And, and Why also... should we have to finance this? If Alan Shearer was to retweet uh, something that was anti, you know, the Labour Party or yeah. what have you, that would also be inappropriate because. Yeah. Alan Shearer is also paid by the BBC. Yeah. I'm not saying he wouldn't. And I'm not buying I don't know this what thing. his politics are. But, Dave's know. shaking his head here, but I'm not buying this thing that, oh, he's a sports presenter, it doesn't matter. He's literally the face of the BBC now. Uh, if you didn't look at Gary Lineker as the face of the BBC, it'd be David Attenborough. And you wouldn't expect him. He's the face him. of Chris. Yeah. That's what he is. Well, he is, but he's also the face of the BBC. And you would not expect David Attenborough to start tweeting about, you know, um, Suella Braverman uh, is taking us back to the 1930s, would you? And if you did, if he did, you'd be shocked. Carol Vorderman did it, and she got the heave ho because she became very vitriolic because she's got a bit mad um, about uh, the Tory party. She's gone, and she's not a news presenter. She's not supposedly under the guidelines, but but they got rid of her because obviously they don't care about her as much doing a Sunday morning show on BBC Wales. I think that it's all about Gary Lineker. This isn't it. It's just all about. It's the Gary Lineker show. It's about making himself relevant, making himself popular with younger, yeah. Twitterati type people. Right. Uh, it's two fingers up to the BBC bosses. More yeah. importantly, it's two fingers up to BBC licence fee payers, yes. which, let's face it, is most adults in this country. Yeah. Um, and I think if it was the other way around, if he was um, tweeting support for Suella Braverman mm. or backing the government oh, he'd through under policy, he'd over the coals for that. I think he would have been out. Yeah. It would be absolute outrage. And I think. You know, th this is a man who supposedly cares about the BBC. But yet he constantly plunges it into, into trouble. Yeah. Well, and I mean, if you care so much about he's, it, he's why would you He's dragging their, their, their name down into the mud. He's, he's putting them into a disrepute situation when the Tories are already looking at the licence fee and already saying the charter's mm. not going to be renewed. Yes, yeah, so and no know. wonder he's not a big fan of the Tories if they're already yeah, but, looking at the, yeah, but, the but charter. If had, but if uh, he had any real sort of strategic brain about him, he wouldn't be making it easy for them to shut the, shut the thing down. Well, they're going to say, that's what they're going to say. Let's be honest, he is a footballer. He is a footballer, but you know what worries right. me the most? The thing that worries me the most is that he's having his strings pulled by Alistair Campbell. Because you know he's got this podcast company yeah. and Alistair Campbell makes an awful lot of money 
with Gary Lineker on this podcast that he does with Rory Stewart. And I'm sure that an awful lot of what Gary Lineker spouts is being fed to him, uh, you know, by the king of spin. But he's very s- weaselly, isn't he, mm. Gary Lineker? Just like he was as a footballer. He yeah. wasn't a very interesting footballer. No. Couldn't do anything very crazy. Goal hanging. He just hung around, yeah. poached it in from about two y- yards yeah. out. And in a way, social media is made for him in this respect because it enables him to engage in sort of hit-and-run guerrilla yeah. tactics. But he never says anything really of no. substance. He never writes, you know, full articles justifying whatever position oh, no. he holds. You know, it'd be very interesting to actually challenge him to some sort of public debate yeah. whereby he would have to engage in a serious and deep conversation. All he does is this kind of sniping, but he doesn't ever articulate what exactly is his political ideology. See, everything you said makes me like him more. And I would actually say, from the king of free speech, do you you not think free speech is important? Because doctors, nurses, policemen, they're they're paid by the public I'm surprised, Dave, that you've fallen for the free speech, um, you know, paradox. Oh, there's no way... Just because I don't like what he says doesn't mean that I'm not in favour of free speech. I'm saying that if he's working for the BBC and they have rules against him saying those things, then he shouldn't be saying them. He can say them... As Mark said, any in any other arena, he can take his job and shove it and walk outside the BBC and stand on the streets of Broadcasting House uh, opposite the Langham Hotel and he can say what he likes. But, that's, but now he's bringing the BBC into disrepute. But what I don't understand about this is, like, doctors can, you know, nurses, carers can write whatever they want and they are funded, well, that they depends. are taxpayer funded. That depends. Not licensed pay, that depends. Piers Morgan had a, 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 an NHS GP in here the other night who supports Hamas. I don't think he's going to be there for much longer. I, I, I don't know about that particular Well, I case. do know. And, and nothing but has it, happened. You've just said, I don't know whether he'll be there. Well, I don't it's think like... he will be, because I think if you're running an organisation and one of the people in that organisation has said something which has been deemed by the government to be illegal, then surely you have to face the consequences of that. And that's free speech. You can say anything you like, mm. but you have to have consequences for it. Otherwise, and the, the difference sorry. is... No, sorry, I was just going to say, the difference is that... Doctors aren't broadcasting directly into your home. If you went into the doctor's surgery and they said when you were presenting your ailment, so oh, by the way, I'm very pro Hamas, you, you might have a. Well, the a problem case with him being pro Hamas is that he's also very anti gay. Um, and so he's probably not that keen to treat gay people. And he doesn't like Jews very much either. So, I mean, if he's your GP and you're Jewish and gay, you're in a bad place. Not only so, that, like, appointments are only 10 minutes. That's a lot to get in. <laughs> you know what I mean? To be honest, it probably wouldn't matter because you can't get to see him anyway. <laughs> but have, look, I'll tell you what, um, you can actually, it's the other way around. I don't want to see a doctor. Yeah. You're an absolute scumbag. <laughs> now, uh, Tim Davey, who's the Director General of the BBC, <laughs> walked outside, very unwisely, walked outside of Broadcasting House today, and he was monstered by our very own Oliver Whitfield Mirchich. Have a look at this. If you want to talk to um, the press office, they'll respond. Um, Why won't made our statement? Thank you very much. Why won't you take any action against Mr. Lineker? It's repeated breaches now that we've had. We've made our statement. Thank you very much. Are you scared of taking any further action in case sports stars once again walk out, Mr. Lineker? We've made our statement. So thanks very much. Thank you. I mean, why is he going outside? What's he doing? <laughs> Does he need a sandwich? He can send out for a sandwich if he's the director general. They've probably got a canteen. What's he doing? Have you have you ever had to do that sort of doorstepping? Oh yeah, loads. Yeah. Does it get really awkward? Yeah, 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 but not for the. <laughs> Does it? Uh, yes. but, uh, yeah, but not really for for the people who are trained to do it because when you when you do it Shut all the time, up. I don't think you can train out <laughs> uncomfortableness. Yeah, well, well, you can actually. I don't feel can uncomfortable you? now, for example. Oh, you I probably you. would like me to, but I, you know, <laughs> I've knocked on people's doors and who have, who have told me to f off. You know, I've, I've knocked on people's doors and pulled guns on me. What? You know, 
that was quite awkward, but, you know, I just had to get out of the way. <laughs> you, know, you, you know, and people don't like it. They don't. And the only time you don't want to do it is if it involves something which is actually a, a, like a really nasty, horrible story. Yeah. But public yeah, yeah. figures, I have no problem at all doorstepping public figures. Absolutely none. Is there anyone you'd like to doorstep? Well, I've given all that up now. So now right. I sit here and I send other people out to do it for me. I think that would make a great TV show. Well, it's, it's like the Daz Doorstep Challenge, but with Mike Graham. <laughs> yeah. You turn up. There we go. Really well, I mean, there used to be shows that were like that, weren't there? But there would be people walking around with microphones and sort of shoving them yeah. into people's faces. I mean, I think you have to have a certain code of conduct as well, because yeah. you can't be too horrible and you can't be too mean and nasty and you can't be intimidating to people. But I think we don't have enough of it in this country. I don't think we have enough of people in public eye being questioned. By, by proper journalists. You know, they go and sit in front of, you know, Laura Kunzberg or Robert Peston and they get asked a lot of very serious political questions, but they don't really get cheeky with them. And it's not the same as turning up when they're walking down the street and going, Oi, what are you going to say to this? And Tim Davey says, refer to the press office, who haven't issued a statement for two days. It's not really good enough because the story's moved on. Samir Shah has said today that he thinks he's in breach of the regulations, so therefore he needs to put out another statement. And he's the top man and he should be able to, you know, he's being paid a lot of money. He should be able to respond to, um, to, to, to being doorstepped. I mean, that's why you get paid the big bucks. Exactly right. But, like, probably, like surely it's not going to, it's not going to be a good look for the BBC if, like, just in the middle of, like, Greg's, he, he's getting a steak bait, <laughs> right. busy getting beaten up by yeah, a yeah. Somebody rounding him, yeah. <laughs> I, I actually think Gazza was wrong on this one. Like, yeah. you know, that's not a good look. Well, that's why he shouldn't go out. Then, in that case, you know, if you're... In the <laughs> you should live in a box. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Rishi Sunak doesn't wander out of Downey Street and go, Fair I point. think I'll just go and get a bacon and egg sandwich down at uh, the corner shop. Does he? Does I don't he... think he's a bacon and egg man. He may not be, but the point is he would be accosted by not only members of the public, but probably members of the press. And, and you know, if you're going to do that, you have to be prepared to say something. Wasn't there a politician that did that to try and show their green credentials? They wanted to walk to Prime Minister's Question Times and all of the close protection Cameron bars. Cameron used like, to do it. I, th I think it might have been Cameron. And all of the close That sounds a very David Cameron annoying kind of But all of them would like, still have the Range Rover <laughs> coming behind them yeah, yeah, with, yeah, all that's the, it. with all yeah, the yeah, heavy yeah, machinery yeah. in it, you know. And of all course. The, well, it was like Bressel Thunberg, you know. Yeah. Goes by yacht. From the you know the yeah, royal family of Mon valued by the royal yeah. family of Mon but then she flew back first class. She also <laughs> flew the crew out who were kind of take the boat, <laughs> boat back. Um, let's talk about Mark Drakeford, possibly the most insignificant uh, political <laughs> leader of uh, modern times. Uh, he said he was going to do five years. Unfortunately, he did do five years. Um, that's kind of come out the blue. I mean, Sam, you'll be the expert on this because um, a lot of people were asking the question: Has he been asked to step aside? You know, has he become an embarrassment for Keir Starmer? Because Somebody in Wales told me today that he was meant to be hanging around for probably at least another six months or so. His popularity has plummeted over the last 18 months. It's, yeah. it's now, um, you know, it's gone down by about half. Right. And I think that's Can't part be worse of the problem. Than soon, actually. He's at minus 39 or something. Yeah. And I think the, the issue is, obviously, that, that what, what happens in Westminster is the Tories always throw it to Wales. If, yes. you, vote, if you vote for Labour at the UK elections, just look to what's happening in Wales. That's yeah. what you're going to get. Right. And obviously the hospitals have higher, longer waiting lists. Yes. Um, the schools aren't doing so well. And obviously, crucially, this 20 mile an hour... The 20 default, mile an hour thing, yeah. Um, Madness. Absolutely crackers. So obviously many, many people in Wales and people who live in Wales rely on their cars mm. uh, in great numbers because so much of Wales is rural. Yeah. And then they're being hit by these 20 mile an hour zones and right. they're very, very angry. Yeah, they are. 
course, in London, Sadiq Khan just does it by congestion, doesn't he? He doesn't actually have to introduce a 20-mile-an-hour zone. He just makes sure that nobody can drive at any speed at all above about nine miles. I think the average speed in London is now nine miles an hour. Yeah. But, I mean, Drakeford was a disaster. Do you remember when he, um, during COVID, he started taping up um, aisles in, in yeah. supermarkets to say, this is not essential shopping, so you can't shop for whatever it was. And loads of things which were actually essential uh, were deemed non-essential. Yeah. Women's products, yeah. think toys, yeah. you know, things that might have helped kids at the uh, height of a pandemic. Right. You can't go in that aisle, you can go in this one. I mean, right. it's crazy. But yeah. he does look like a character from Fireman Sam. So he does have that kind of <laughs> likability. Who's also about. from Wales, I think. So that's, that's why I said he's Pondy Pandy. Pondy Pandy, isn't it? Uh, I thought it was Pondy Pandy. Is it? If anyone knows, please write in. I think you might be wrong in. about that. Is it Pondy Pandy? <laughs> yeah, right, it's made My up anyway. Was it the Speaker of the House of Commons, Lord? Tony Lord Pandy. Tony Pandy, yes, there is a Tony Great Pandy. Man, I forget. Yeah, there is yeah, a Tony anyway, Pandy. Yeah. Who said that we weren't going to cover the big topic? <laughs> well, listen, Wales <laughs> is a place that doesn't often get a lot of attention, so, you know, it's good to yeah. give it to them. Um, have we got time to do that other Father Christmas thing? Have we got that? Because <gasps> we'll come back to that. I've got to show you an amazing Father Christmas video, one which, the like of which you'll never have seen. Uh, you're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Uh, coming up, we'll be telling you why exams are now bad for the environment, so don't do them. And also, we'll have another look at what's going on on all the front pages as we talk to you. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for this. The World of Work. You're not going to believe what you're about to hear. I mean, the world of woke here is meant to point out the madness of the reality that has now been constructed around us. We all know that students these days are a bunch of snowflakes. We all know that most of them only attend a couple of lectures a week. Well, now it's extended to schools as well as universities. And thanks to the lockdown, schools were shut for the best part of two years. Loads of teenagers ended up doing their learning remotely, or in other words, from the bedroom. Uh, and if most of them at least had actually had somewhere to go to do their GCSEs, that might have been something. They had to actually get dressed to go and do their exams. Well, that might now become a thing of the past. Why? Because some bright spark has claimed that doing exams is actually bad for the environment. And worse than that, doing one GCSE test has the same carbon footprint as five washing machine cycles, or the equivalent of driving a car for 1.13 miles. This startling revelation almost left me speechless. Almost but not quite. You might think that something as nutty as this would have to come from Just Stop Oil or some other reality-challenged eco-nutcase organisation. The truth is, though, it's coming from the people who actually set the exams. That's right. It's that rather troubled organisation called Ofqual. They reckon it takes 5.6 kilograms of CO2 to prepare, print, sit and mark one English language exam. This year, that means that 780,000 pupils who did so created 4,368 tonnes of CO2 in just one sitting. Wouldn't it be nice if we could believe that our children are actually learning something in school instead of having to put up with this oversensitive bilge? Save the planet, don't do anything. That's the world of woke. The world of woke. I don't know. Imagine saying that GCSEs are bad for the planet. I mean, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, you might as well, they might as well just say, just don't do anything. Don't do anything at all. Panel's still here. I've got something scary to show you. And uh, for anyone who's got young children still up this late at night, uh, you may wish to look away now, because this is about Santa Claus and Christmas. It was the night before Christmas. Santa took a deep breath. 
If only he'd known it would lead to his death. Santa always listened when the famous doctors spoke. Too bad they didn't mention that the virus spreads like smoke. That's festive, isn't it? <laughs> it's no John Lewis ad, is it? It really is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, who would come? This has been put out by something called the John Snow Project, right? Now you'll know that John Snow was, of course, not the famous one who used to be on Channel Four News, annoying uh, all people with conservative uh, outlooks. This was the other John Snow. Game of Thrones character as well. Well, he may well be, but this right. was the original John Snow who actually discovered cholera. Um, in oh. Soho, and I can tell you this because I, I went to a pub called the John Snow, um, yes. just around the back of Carnaby Street, and I went, why is it called after that bloke on Channel 4? It turned out not to be. Uh, there, was a, there was a standpipe in, uh, in the street there, just around the back of Carnaby Street, during the time when cholera sort of became a thing, and loads of people got cholera by using this dirty water in the street. And John Snow was a scientist who lived nearby, and he worked out that it was cholera that was killing them. So they've gone and started up this thing called the John Snow Project. Um, which they say is a reliable, honest information machine on COVID-19. Well, I don't think so. You know, making out that Santa Claus has died of COVID, <laughs> it's pretty awful, that. It's quite bleak, Santa's isn't it? Santa's in a coffin. Yeah. I mean, you know, he hasn't even finished delivering the first lot of presents in, you know, the Far East. Yeah. But I suppose as postmodernists, they don't care about what the truth is and they don't care whether Santa exists no. or not because we can will him to exist or somebody can yeah. transition into... You can right. transition into being Santa. I could. And, we, you know, if we said otherwise, we'd have to go yes. to jail. So That's it doesn't right. surprise I see what you did there because that brings us very nicely to <laughs> the front page of the Daily Mail uh, in which a, a top Tory has reported to police... Uh, in a trans row, has vowed to continue speaking up for women's rights. This is Rachel McLean, the Conservative Party's Deputy Chairman for Women. Um, she's apparently got herself in one of these trans bully storms. The trans bullies won't silence me, she says. Mark, what do you reckon? Well, I mean, it's a manifest, yet another manifestation of how the... Tr transgender... You know, that same manifestation is personifestation. Okay, <laughs> personifestation, if I can say that, yeah. Um, it's a lot of syllables. So it's a difficult word to say. It is. Had a few glasses of wine, but anyway. Um, <laughs> so it's another manifestation, Persephone. What did you say? <laughs> well, go with manifestation. Yeah, right. It's um, fine. Um, He's a comedian. He yeah. doesn't care. <laughs> right. Of the way in which transgender ideology, which is different from transgenderism, so yeah. you know, it's not illegal for a bloke to go around dressed up as a woman or to claim to be a right. woman, and nobody says it should be, right. even if you think it may be a sort of manifestation of mental illness. Right. But that's fine. Everybody can, you know, should be free to do their own thing. But what we have here is an example of the way in which the transgender ideologists, yes. uh, who are, you know, to be found on the centre-left, indeed people like Mark Drayford and yeah. the Green Party and so on, actually want to control our speech, mm. actually want to prohibit our right to use yes. our powers of cognition to say what we right. believe it's true also that, to, you know, a, a, a biological male cannot yeah. simultaneously be a woman. Right. It defies the but, laws but also, of identity and non-contradiction. Right. But also to use words as they were intended to be used, to use words to describe things properly. Because what I noticed that the kind of wokists do is they change the wording of things to make them actually less descriptive. So that the words that you're supposed to use for things like this turn out not to describe what you're trying to describe. You know, for example, chest feeders... Um, you know, women uh, are no longer women in the NHS, they're people with a cervix. And you kind of go, well, not necessarily. You know, you can't necessarily... You know, so there might be a woman who doesn't have a cervix. There might be a woman who doesn't have a womb. But she's still a woman. 
You know, so, so they, they've just gone away from reality. I call them reality sort of linguistic denied. fascism we've now entered. Yeah. And the left has changed dramatically from what it was. At one time, the old left, even if they were economically statist, were at least tended to be liberal on yeah. cultural um, issues. Now they're becoming a fully authoritarian right. movement. And Mark Drayford... Uh, Drakeford is, a, in, a, you know, a classic manifestation yeah. of that. But also, they're always wanting to... She's been reported to the police, as old uh, Rachel would claim. Uh, well, I can't understand this story. Look, what has she said? Well, she basically had a go at somebody who's, I think, running for office. It's a, a Green a Party green candidate, candidate. And she described um, him as a man who wears a wig and calls himself a proud lesbian, which is, you know, one way of describing him. There's nothing wrong with it. Well, I think he describes himself as a lesbian. So he's yeah. a biological male yeah. who claims he's a lesbian because he's also claiming to be a woman. Yes, and she says she's defending women, which she is. And she doesn't believe that she should be reported to the police for doing so, because I don't think you should. So often um, in this debate, men are bullying women. Yeah. And that's what it comes down to. Right. And like, it's good to see somebody standing up for women. I think so. And there's not many not many political women who are actually proud proud enough and, and brave enough to do it. It's because very because nasty. it's very risky for you. It's career. very nasty. Uh, front page of the Times today has got Facebook is now a danger to children. Uh, this is from the National Crime Agency. I mean, there's a lot of crime going on, mm. to be honest. And, I mean, they may be right about this, but we had a, a segment a bit earlier in the show about this sort of um, outbreak, epidemic, if you like, of shoplifting that's going on because there's a lot of uh, gangs being imported from overseas to come and lift loads of things from shops and flog them on the internet, which sounds quite dangerous as well. I'm not sure if Facebook being a danger to children is really worthy of uh, the National Crime Agency, is it? I think it's this ongoing battle, isn't it, between the government and and social media companies about encryption. Yeah. And the government want messages to be accessible by the police and other authorities. Right. And obviously the social media companies, part of their value to the people who use them is the fact that they are encrypted. Right. So they're very, very reluctant to give that is this Is this going to be like Facebook having its own version of WhatsApp then? Um, I don't know. It's 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 meta, isn't it? It's yeah. Facebook owners. I thought they owned WhatsApp anyway, don't they? Yeah, they own everything, I what, think. <laughs> what I find interesting about this story is I was talking to a young person the other day. Oh, yeah? and I, I said, I know, <laughs> I know. Um, the, yeah. the police are never around, are they? they are. Um, and uh, I was chatting to them and I, I said that I was on Facebook yeah. and I might, have, I might as well have said Yeah, they're not I, interested. Yeah. I wrote in vellum. Like, they were many, just yeah. like, what, what's Facebook? Yeah. Why are you on that? <laughs> right. It's Snapchat or whatever it yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. So I find this very weird that Facebook... Facebook is a danger to children because they don't seem to use it. Well, right. But, but I mean, they're, think, so? but they're actually saying that there's some kind of morally reprehensible decision that has been taken here uh, in which paedophiles might be able to hide from people um, because of the encryption. I'm not quite sure what's going Sounds on Sounds like uh, the day-to-day, -day, if you ever remember that show. <gasps> yes. <laughs> what yeah, a show. Yeah. But, I mean, don't you think the last was that sort of resort of a bounder now? It used to be sort of jingoistic, patriotic rhetoric. Um, now it's people who are constantly seeking to extend the powers of the state by saying, this is necessary to defend children. Yes. And so the online safety bill is, you know, um, another example yeah. of this. So adult rights, our right to access mm. broadly whatever we want yeah. to, because I don't believe a computer screen, no matter what right. is on there, can actually cause you harm. Right. And you have to use your own... Adult right. powers. But now they're going to want you to so sign saying, up oh, for all sorts of things. Might see this. Yes. You know, we're going to be banned from seeing whatever it is we want to see. 
Right. Well, look at the next story for the for the Sun front page. Showbiz exclusive. Leo in secret date with Lottie Moss, 30 years after a fling with Kate. This might be some kind of record for uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> um, I still my favourite thing about him is that great Ricky Gervais clip uh, where he made fun of him at the Golden Globes, where he said, you know, this ceremony's now been going on for so long that Leonardo DiCaprio's girlfriend's too old for him, um, <laughs> which was brilliant. You know, and it's brought the house down. And even DiCaprio was laughing. You know. Because he does have a thing for younger women. Um, uh, so, um, oh, she's, oh, sorry, she's half-sister, came. I thought it was his daughter. Um, so they, apparently they hooked up 30 years after Leo had a fling with Kate Moss. Oh. And it's at the, it always happens at the Chilton Firehouse. Yes. I went there once and it was quite boring. I don't know what, whether <laughs> I was in the wrong... Action. I don't know whether I was in the wrong bit of it, you know, but it was just like a very expensive bar full of really, really obje objectionable people, you know. And I was one of them, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I've always thought if they pay people to do these stories, because it's always the Chilton Firehouse. Yeah. Yes. Well, people do go there, don't they? I mean, that's the thing. But do they go there in order to have these stories, in order to just be relevant again? Well, maybe. I mean, I think the thing is about famous people, and we, this was the same when I lived in America, is there's certain places that famous people go and then they complain about being written about. And it's like, well, the paparazzi are hanging around out there because that's where you go. There's lots of other places you could go where the paparazzi don't hang around. Like, if you go to the Ivy restaurant in, in you know, Soho, uh, you're going to find photographers outside. But there's about a million other restaurants in London you could do yeah. where you wouldn't find any. Mm. And so if you really want to be, you know, private, I would suggest don't go to the Chilton Firehouse. Couldn't agree I mean, nothing that. against the Chilton Firehouse, but, you know, if you don't want to be written about, don't go there. I also I, I have no time for people who have used the media in order to get a platform then complaining that they're in the media. I'm, yeah. I'm kind of like, you, you, what is good for the goose is good for the gander. It is. I mean, I prefer the story uh, today about rather than about Leo's latest date, um, <laughs> the bloke from BP, Mr Looney, uh, who appears to have written off 32 million quid um, for a shag. For want of a better so, word. So he he paid that? No, the... but he would have received <laughs> that, it. No, that would be a story. <laughs> no, that would have been the most expensive yeah. shag in history. Yeah. No, but he's not going to get £32 million of a payoff for the BP um, job that he had because he right. was running BP. He would have got it if, in fact, uh, he had come clean and said, I had all these affairs. So they've now cancelled his £32 million payoff. But what's the problem? I don't understand. It's a bit like the Philip yeah. Schofield thing. Yeah. I couldn't understand he apparently it. Lied it's a consenting... Them. Sexual yes. act between two people well, over I think the age of majority. Yes. Does anybody care? Well, about I think it? in the case of BP, like a lot of companies now, if you get mixed up with somebody in the same company, you're supposed to tell them in case it might influence any of the decisions that you might make. Like you might promote somebody um, that you're having sex oh, with, okay. you know, which is not really a very good thing to happen. So yeah, he, I don't know. He was That's an awkward conversation, though, isn't it? On a Monday, going into HR. Well, imagine him going <laughs> home to Mrs. Looney, going, you know, that 32 million I said we were getting. Well, we're not getting it now. Um, we might have to sell the house. <laughs> and especially go, with a name like oh, Looney no. as Shocking. well. We're out of time. Um, I'm sorry. Thank you to all of you for joining me. And that's all from me. You've been watching The Independent Republic uh, of Mike Graham. Uh, thanks to Mark. Thanks to Sam. Thanks to Dave Chawler. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow at 9pm, only on Talk TV. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.